Well, over the past few sermons together, we've been looking at the goodness of God in several different ways. The first time we met together, we talked about God as being good in his essential being. In uh, Exodus chapter 33, Moses comes before the living God and says, show me your glory. And the Lord responds by saying, I'll show you my goodness. And it is a wonderful thing that God is great, but it's a more wonderful thing that God is good. And so we exalt in that. There's this inherent glory that is part of the very nature and character of God. Secondly, we talked about the fact that God is good in creation, that God created, that he looked around, and that he responded to it all by saying, this is all very good, that there was a time in history, didn't last very long, but there was a time in history when the maxim life is good was actually true in everything because God saw all that he had created. It all reflected his goodness. And then last time we talked about the fact that God is good to rebels. That is that uh, when the Lord looked around and when he saw that it was good, it was followed by him saying, wait a minute, after Adam and Eve had fallen, what is this that you have done? And so they fell from grace. They resisted the Lord as we also do. The creation was brought into absolute ruin. And God's response was so good when he said, I will crush the serpent's head. And that's what we're going to talk about today from Titus chapter 3. The goodness of God in redemption. But when the outrageous goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us and he justified us and he regenerated us and he sanctified us. All of those things took place so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're just saying it today for everyone to hear so that our hearts will be uplifted and so that the whole world can hear it, God is so very good. Well, all of us have seen them. Most of us have smushed one or two of them. We're talking about stink bugs. Now, I'm terrified to use this illustration, and I'll admit it. Fearful that some will understand, but I think most of you will love it and maybe even laugh out loud. But I was going to begin the sermon with a stink bug illustration, but last time I did that, I got a reaction from someone in this church, or maybe it was online, we really don't know. It's a letter that was sent to me from the National Governance of Stink Bugs Foundation. <coughs> it is the truth. You won't find this organization online. They're in hiding, I think. Well, kind of like the stink bugs that they represent. But uh, this uh, particular person or organization did accuse me of some things. So the first accusation was this. You're guilty of the most severe provocation, provocations against stink bugs. I suppose that's true. Because I said some very unkind things about stink bugs last time I was up here. Not only that, they accused me of acts of aggression and worse, against our brother stink bug, bugs. And I thought to myself, yeah, but I thought that was a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, by the way, no one has sent me a letter about dust mites, 
So you can continue to vacuum your floors until further notice. There's still an opportunity for someone to write about that. But in retrospect, I still think that stink bugs are a bad thing. Maybe even, you know, going all the way back to the fall of mankind and the curse, not really sure. But don't miss the bigger point that's being made in this letter. The bigger point is simply this. We stand up for stink bugs. You don't. Therefore, we are good people, but you are a bad person. I get it. I'll accept the charge, but it's a sad world that we live in. Now, I think this is a humorous letter, but I'm not all that sure. You never know. And I mention the letter because it sounds an awful lot like verse 3 to me when we're talking about fallen lost people, hating one another, and being hated by one another, I'm going to think of the National Governance of Stink Bugs Foundation. It's where I'm headed. And these people need the gospel. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> and of course, so do we. We all need the gospel. Something tells me that I'm going to re uh, resent that or regret that particular illustration as well. But anyway, we're looking today at five ways that uh, the, uh, the redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God. And there are just some things in this world that are good in and of themselves. They were just intended by God to be absolutely wonderful, and redemption is one of those things. So the first way that redemption highlights the goodness of God is this. Number one, God chose to deal graciously with the catastrophe of a violated creation. He decided to do, graciously deal with the catastrophe of a violated creation. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hating or hated by others and hating one another. Verse 3 paints a, a very bleak picture, but it's not too late to escape it. And that's the good news. The apostle doesn't take a lot of time to explain the passage. He really doesn't need to. All of us understand it. Uh, we live in a world that's not what God intended. Paul Tripp reminds us that we were created for a world that was a whole lot better than the one that we are living in. And he also reminds us that part of the problem is that we don't love as we ought to love, hating and hating one another, hated and hating one another. And that we ought to give ourselves to the real love of God, which he describes this way, self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation, nor that the one being loved is deserving. Now, the world ought to be that way, but of course, most of us operate on another principle altogether. Verse 3 begins with a hard truth about humanity, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. We can unpack that, but we really don't need to do it. The problem is that we really just don't like it. Or at worst, we plain out deny it. And the good news is that God speaks into this darkness, and so must we. So if you look at the context, looking back at Titus 2 and 3, we find a lot there about speaking the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's not accepted, even when the world bucks at it. And so in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, we read this, 
But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he's speaking about the truth. In verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. In other words, they are to be truthful. In verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent and to teach what is good and wholesome. In other words, teach the truth. In verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teachings, show integrity. In other words, speak the truth into the darkness. Then at the end of chapter 2, Paul summarizes all of it by saying in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Speak the truth and speak it into the darkness. If we want to know the reason for the honesty and the demand for honesty, we see that also in Titus 2 and in Titus 3, and it's been read for you Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared. And that word's a big word in this passage, the appearance of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 13, waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior. And then it summarizes by saying this, by who gave himself for us to redeem us. And then our passage that we are looking at today, Titus 3, verse 3, once we were all of these things, but... When the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So the book of Titus, and really the whole Bible, is just being honest with self and with the condition that our fallen world is in, and it's something that we must be honest about. A few weeks ago, a friend asked me to review and to critique a presentation that he had put together regarding his sharing of the gospel. And when I read it, I thought, wow, this thing is really dark and it's just hard truth. But it was just the truth and it was the honest truth. And we live in a world that needs to hear that truth and uh, hates to hear that truth at the same time. It's always been that way, incidentally, but we can't be afraid to speak it. And we need to speak it on behalf of the gospel. So into the midst of this uh, brokenness, And this catastrophe of a violated creation, God is just being honest with us when he speaks and when he talks to us and explains that this is the way we are. And in spite of all the recent television commercials that uh, suggest that we're heading to a utopia, it's not really something that there's a lot of evidence for. And if it's any help for those of you who are younger, back in the 60s, they used to have exactly those same commercials. I want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Well, how did that work out? The same thing's going to happen in this generation. Hopefully, this generation will respond to the gospel. So I'm sorry to say that there isn't a utopia on the way. And the worst news is, is there's not even a utopia inside your heart. It's not there. And the reason that we know that is because... You know, we can say, well, I just want all peoples to get together. Well, we want all peoples to get together as long as they get together the way we think they ought to get together. And if they don't, well, then we're talking about hated and being hated by each other. So just try to create a utopia that uh, doesn't give preeminence to the way I think. And then all of a sudden we realize that it's at its roots, just like everything else, very selfish. The bad news is, I really don't see much bad in me, but I sure see a whole lot of bad in you. 
And that's the nature of the human being. How outrageously good is it that God decided to deal with the catastrophe of a violated creation? At one time, slaves to sin and death, but God moved toward us in spite of all of this, and his initiative was outrageously good. So the first way that redemption highlights the goodness of God is that God dealt with the uh, problem of this creation that had been violated and fallen and broken. It's not anything at all like God had intended it for it to be. He dealt with it. And we know that because of number two. The second way redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God is because of the infinite contrast of redemption. There's a contrast there. Verse four, but blessed conjunction, something's going to change when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, everything was turned upside down. Everything was turned upside down. Something real, something astonishing happened. The word used is the word uh, to describe epiphany. God the Son made an appearance. The light began to shine in the darkness. Galatians 4 reminds us that when the fullness of time had fully come, God did something. He sent forth his Son, and it was an appearance, an epiphany. Now, it can mean a light that shines in the dark place, but appearing also means to become manifest or gloriously visible. The commentaries say it this way, to effect a rescue for the miserable human condition, something external was necessary, something totally not like the rest of humanity. Who was this? It was the person of Jesus Christ, which included all of his divine being with all of its fullness, all of his divine attributes in glory and in wonder, and his divine action on behalf of mankind, which was kind and very, very good. We're just saying that the appearing of the Lord Jesus was unlike anything else humanity has ever seen, and we'll never see anything like it in the future, except for maybe his second appearing. 1 Peter chapter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. How? With the blood of Christ. He was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God. Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce what we once were, ungodly, full of worldly passions. Titus 2 verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. We're just talking about unspeakable goodness and kindness on our behalf. There was an epiphany, an appearance, unlike anything else before in history, unlike anything that will happen in the future in history, in the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior appeared to us. Now, this epiphany can be witnessed in at least three ways, and I just mentioned them. Number one, God did something. That is that this action was decisive. He didn't just happen in on things. He planned it out, and he came. Number two, it was good. There's a characteristic of goodness and loving kindness that's part of the appearing of Christ that is not the part of our appearing. There's a contrast there, which is number three, a huge contrast being made. Unlike the self-worship of people living in bondage to sin. Unlike that, the season arrived in which God 
had decided to appear. And it was an appearance of goodness and power and of surpassing kindness. The word is philanthropia, which we'll see in a minute. And it was gloriously and instantly visible. He appeared, but he appeared in glory. So there are two things going on in verse 4. Follow me. Number one, Christ set aside some of his privileges. Those are uh, privileges of incarnation, which were set aside. Philippians chapter 2. We celebrate that every December when we uh, enjoy the most wonderful time of the year. God becomes a man. But the appearing includes much more than that. It isn't simply that Jesus came to earth. God in the form of man incarnate. It also includes this goodness and philanthropia in redemption. That is his inclination towards us. He didn't just come and be here. He didn't just come and perform the work of the cross. He didn't just come and perform resurrection. He did much more than that. His inclination became towards us. It's very important that we understand that. And there's two words that describe it. The first word is goodness which is just a general kind of goodness. God is just good to all people. That's common grace. But, but there's this divine, generous uh, kind of goodness that God bestows only on those that he loves. And second, secondly is the word loving kindness, which God shows us an unusual kind of, uh, of loving kindness. Not the word agape that we would expect, but more the word phileo, philanthropia, this unexpected and preferential kindness where he's leaning towards us and he's moving towards us in favor and in grace. Let me give you an example. So in Acts chapter 28, there are only two places where this word's used in the New Testament. This one and in Acts 28, uh, Paul is shipwrecked and uh, they're landed on the island of Malta and they're cold and they're miserable and they're exalted or ex exhausted and they've lost everything. And they land there on the beach, and we read there that uh, the people of Malta showed these shivering survivors unusual philanthropia, that is kindness, that they went way beyond hospitality with them, that they actually drew them in and let them become part of their, ho their household as they extended this uh, preferential treatment. Another example is uh, Mephibosheth, which was Jonathan's son in the Old Testament, uh, Mephibosheth was a prince, but that's pretty much all he was. He was lame. He was not capable of taking care of himself. And in a sense, he was pretty insignificant because his, his family had been removed from the throne and David was now seated on that throne. And so to King David, Mephibosheth, why can't I say that word? Let's all say it out loud together. No, Mephibosheth was just a normal guy, but he was also a guy who was worthy of David's special treatment. He was given a place at the king's table, unusual kindness. And we're just saying that this whole idea of philanthropia and goodness is no small thing because God is not like us. He's not begrudging. He's not me first. He's totally the opposite of that. He's not limited. He's not reluctant. He's not temporal in his abilities. Rather, he is full of goodness and loving kindness, and his appearing is glorious because of that, because that's the way God is. How outrageously good of God is it to manifest that 
infinite contrast between the two. What we are apart from Christ and who the Lord Jesus Christ is in all of his goodness and all of his loving kindness. Well, I love uh, grandkids. I like to visit grandkids. If uh, you don't, then it's just because you haven't lived long enough to understand it. Uh, I remember when I was younger, I didn't have any grandkids, and people would come up to me, and they'd be talking to me about their grandkids, and I'd be rolling my eyes and, and yawning in my heart anyway, and I'd be like, you know, don't you guys have any life at all? That's all you have to talk about, but then God gave me one, and it all changed, but I do like spending time with grandkids, uh, but sometimes I'll admit it's just a plain old train wreck, because kids act like kids most of the time. They act like, like, like verse 3, right? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to all kinds of various passions and pleasures. And so when you're with the grandkids very long, you hear things like, he looked at me, and they're all upset about that. Or she touched me. <laughs> or she rolled her eyes at me. I'm like, okay, roll them back. But get over it, whatever is necessary. And so I can get short-fused in a real hurry. And sad to say, I really am tempted to act exactly the way they are, petulant and irascible and, and nasty. But I can't. And the reason is I can't is because I can't act like a child. Someone in the room has to be an adult. And the bad news about being a grandparent is that it's got to be you. It's not them. It's you. Verse 3 is saying that no one on earth wanted to be an adult, and they still don't. Verse 4 is saying that is the reason that the appearing of the Lord was so necessary and so refreshing, because the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and there was nothing at all that was like it. The first reason why redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God is because of the catastrophe of the created or the, the violated creation. The second was because of the infinite cost when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, everything changed and it was for the better. Thirdly, redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God because of the contrariness of humanity. Because of the contrariness of humanity. Verse 5, he saved us not by works of righteousness or not by works of, uh, done by us in righteousness. This is the pivot pass of the passage. This is like the hinge. So between verse 3 and 4, we see the one contrast, malice on one side, God's kindness on the other. But in verse 5, we see another contrast, and it's all about who it is that actually does the redeeming. But he saved us. It's not complicated. It's kind of a simple declarative sentence. He saved us. And we might expect that the Bible would follow up by saying, are there any questions about that? He saved us. Anybody have any misgivings or misunderstandings? Everybody got that? Simple enough. But it does anticipate an argument. And it is that age-old argument of self-justification, which is true in the heart of every person that's ever lived. It's in our hearts that we think it. It's in our hearts that we say it. We don't usually say it out loud, but it's this. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. 
I mean, other guys need a savior, not me. Other people need help from the living God. I'm not so sure about me. And the response is, yeah, you are exactly like other men. You need a savior. In verse 5, we see, again, it's this conjunction, but, and then there's this focus on these three words, he saved us just to diffuse our contrary heart and to make manifest the goodness and the loving kindness of God and to make certain that we understand the source and author of salvation that is perfectly visible in the positive. He says, he saved us. And then in the negative, in verse 5, he says, we didn't save us, all right? It's not by works of righteousness done by you. Because even in salvation, we're confronted with the biggest lie that's ever been on this planet, and it is that lie. You will be like God. Genesis chapter 3. No, we won't be like God. God is the one who saves. He saves us. That I will be like God thing is uh, hideous and contrary, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it never rests. It's always alive in us. It lurks deep in us. And, and so, so let's just ask ourselves today, is it okay for us to just be honest about this? That we really do think, apart from Christ, that we can save ourselves as human beings. That's contrariness to God. That's this deep rebellion that lives within every human being and are clamoring to be preeminent. We really do think this way. God has spoken, dot, 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 but so have I. And we don't agree. And so guess who I'm going to listen to? I'm going to listen to me. So it's not difficult to understand the gospel And the gospel is the best news that we've ever heard precisely because that's what our heart tells us, that we can be like God, that we don't have to to do what God has commanded us to do, that we're smarter than God, that that all of those things that work on us and work in our hearts. And so the best news that we have ever heard is in Titus chapter 3, and it is the gospel. Now the gospel comes in two parts, and I love to share them. Part one is that you're hopeless. Yeah, really. You're just a hopeless human being. If you don't believe it, just ask your husband or wife. Just ask your boss. Just ask your neighbor. Just ask anybody who's got to deal with you on a regular basis, and you've got to admit it. They're saying, at least, you're hopeless. And of course, I'm hopeless too, all of us. Lost in sin, condemned because of it. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves. And even though our culture protests, and they do, we're not half as pretty as we think that we are. Now, compared to the culture, maybe you're very pretty. Maybe you're very nice compared to everyone else in the culture. But just stand before the living God for two or three seconds, and then tell me about your own little personal holiness. Quite different with the contrast. Part one. We're all hopeless. Part two, you can have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he poured out lavishly on us in Christ Jesus. In other words, believe in someone besides yourself. Believe in the living God. Put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Titus 
is just telling us, the book of Titus, that he saves us. The gospel is the power of God. It's the kindness of God. It's the inclination of God towards us. It's his determined pleasure towards us. It's his decisive work towards us and really towards anyone who is willing to believe. And when that truth finally breaks in and finally gets past the varnish and past the veneer of our hearts, something in us will marvel and rejoice and shout for joy because we cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we discover that that's exactly the kind of God he is, that he is merciful. He does lavish grace. He does break in on us with a full orb salvation. In other words, he saves us, but don't be hoodwinked. Don't be hoodwinked. You and I really do have to abandon ourselves first. You and I have to turn away from our own cleverness, our own stubborn pride, our own self-love, all of that stuff. And we need to put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. You know what the good news is? God's powerful salvation is so strong and powerful that it can transform even the most contrary hard heart. The evidence of that is sitting in this room. He changed us. He can and he will. That's the transformative beauty of the gospel. Regeneration, you must be born again. So redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God in three ways. Number one, the catastrophe of violated creation is resolved. The contrast between God and humanity is made. And then the contrariness of humanity is overcome because of the gospel. The fourth reason or the fourth way that redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God is because of the considerableness of salvation. And by that, we're talking about the surpassing greatness of salvation, the completeness of it the sufficiency of it, the excellence of redemption. This salvation really is something that's worthy of God and God alone. He saved us, verse 5, not because of uh, righteous works done by us. 5b, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there's a um, question which perplexes scholars when they look at that sentence or that phrase by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And uh, they look at that and they say, well, is that one continuous action or is that something that's like in parts? First, God regenerates and then he sanctifies. And I think that there's something much deeper going on than simply that. And a little theology will help us out and the reason that it matters is because God is up to something and it's up and he's up to something really, really big. So if you look in the Old Testament, for example, in Ezekiel 36, you'll find that God promises renewal, that God promises to transform human beings. And in verse 26, we read this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Notice the pronoun I. God is saying, I will do this. (laughs) I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. If you go to the New Testament, 
you'll find that you have there as well promises of renewal from God. James chapter 1, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. Two big phrases in that verse. Number one, of his own will. And number two, he brought us forth. And you see that in many other places all throughout the Bible. But here's the point. The only thing that's necessary for God to accomplish anything at all in this universe, anything at all, is simply this, that God wills that it happens. He speaks it into existence. God wills it. Let there be light. There was light. Let there be life. And there is life. Why? God says, I will do it. We need to know this morning that God's not up in heaven wringing his hands in desperation over the souls of people that we're praying for. And we can go to him with great confidence and great certainty and, and recognize that God is a God who is powerful enough to do what needs to be done to bring our lost people to Christ. The passage is simply saying that God does it, number one. Number two, that it's a complete redemptive work from beginning to end. And so whatever else is going on in verse 5, we do know this, God does it, that it's God's work and it should take it should be like a mountain off of our back. But verse 5 has more for us and it gets even better because God does this by means and the two means that he uses is number 1, washing of regeneration, which I think is the new birth spoken of in John chapter 3, don't marvel that I say to you you might want to possibly be born again. No, you must be born again. Regeneration. And then number two, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which is also included in redemption. And by that, I think it means sanctification. That What God started, what God began in us, he's going to continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And consequently, this work of transformation is also no small thing. And it's something that we might want to spend a good deal of time thinking about and rejoicing over and exalting in. And we know this because of the lavishness that's described in verse 6. Speaking of God, third person of the triune God, this, this massive work, this extensive work that God is doing requires the full abundance of God the Spirit as he works inside of us. It's like a deep ocean current that is at work within those who believe the work of God the Spirit as he regenerates us and sanctifies us. He is poured out. He is poured out on us in full measure. Well, I've been to three, I think, maybe more, three of uh, those incredible places in your life where they're just places that take your breath away. The first one is Niagara Falls. I just still can't believe that that river today, it's flowing up there. You know, I don't have to be there to watch it, to monitor it. There's nobody in a little control center making sure that the water keeps going. It just goes on and on and on, day and night, forever and ever, it seems. It's a magnificent place to be. Second is Hawaii, right? Steep volcanic mountains that are covered with lush vegetations and deep, clear uh, oceans. It's just an amazing place. You just catch yourself looking at it and, and being amazed by the uh, magnificence of the creation. But then the third one is the Grand Canyon, which just 
like it's the initial surprise. You drive up there, there's nothing, there's nothing. There's some trees, some pine trees, but there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. And you get out of the car and you walk across the parking lot and there's a railing there and you're like, whoa, <laughs> watch your step. And you just stand there in amazement. You can't believe it. It's just an awesome, awesome place. Well, there are two things that are... Uh, that hit us when we go to places like that. First is that initial, that initial sight, that, that, that initial experience where you just stand there and you're like, oh, I don't have, I don't know what to say because you can't describe it. The second thing is the overwhelmingness of it that kind of just lingers. And then when you, you know, you get back home and you're just like, oh, I just wish I could go back. And then you go back and it's not half as cool the second time. It doesn't seem like you can ever resurrect that feeling within you, but it's still an awesome thing. And the experience itself was magnificent. Well, that's what Titus 3 is telling us that we should do. That it should be in all of us that, that every contingency of redemption is covered. That God's going to do the whole work in us that he's going to do it perfectly, that he's going to do it well, that it's going to be so complete, so comprehensive, but it's also going to be full of wonder. We may not see it because we live day to 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 day, but there will be a day when we look at it and we're going to say, whoa, God in heaven, how very, very good you are. This is so true that the writer of Hebrews 2 asks this question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is we won't escape. It is something that is marvelous. How outrageously good is it of God, this considerableness of salvation, washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have four of them down. We're at the last one, number five. Redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God because of our eternal elevated condition. So that, verse 7, purpose clause, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in verse 7, we're given two results. There are many more in scripture, but these are the two listed. First, we're justified by grace. Now, you would notice if you saw it that it's in the passive Tense. In other words, it's not something we do, right? God saved us. He saved us. He also justified us. Justification is something that happens to us. It's not something we pull off. I'm the object, not the cause. And secondly, believers are heir according to, heirs according to the promise and hope of eternal life. That is, heirs of all of the promises, people who have the hope of eternal life and enjoy the assurance of a secure spiritual inheritance. How exhilarating should this be for you and me, this redemptive work of God, saved through the sacrifice of Christ our Lord, regenerated by the power of God the Spirit, made forever right with God, forgiven, adopted, beloved, God the Spirit living within us, all of us headed for glory, all of this generously, lavishly, poured out on us philanthropia, the goodness and the loving kindness of God. Now you'll notice that I have this statement in your, uh, in your insert there. I don't know where I got it from, but it's there. 
So we'll read it, all right? Redemption puts us in even better standing than the original innocence. Think it over, speaking about you and I. Adam and Eve stood before God because they had not yet sinned. And therefore, we're not guilty in his presence. You and I don't have that luxury. You and I are people who have grossly offended the living God. And yet, through redemption, we live in perfect fellowship with the living God and enjoy privilege before him that Adam and Eve could not have possibly imagined. But we have it, and we have it in Christ. Well, Stephen Charnock, who was a great Puritan of the 17th century, said this. He's right. God was under no obligation to pity our misery or repair our ruin. He might have stood on the terms of that first covenant and exacted our eternal death, and he would have been absolutely righteous in doing it. But, but, and this is the great contrast, when uh, when man fell from his created goodness, God would evidence that he could not fall from his infinite goodness. Divine goodness would not stand by and be a spectator. He provided the remedy for our souls. That is great news, something that causes our soul to rejoice. Redemption highlights the outrageous goodness of God, number one, because of the catastrophe of a violated creation which God dealt with, number two, because of this infinite contrast between human beings and Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, because of the contrariness of humanity. He saved us, even though we think we might be able to do it ourselves, number four, because of the considerableness of salvation, the surpassing greatness, the extensiveness of redemption that is ours, and then finally because of our eternal and elevated condition, we're justified, we're heirs, those who have the certainty of eternal life. And God looks at all of that, and we ought to look at all of that and say, behold, it is outrageously good. Oh, how the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Well, I have an orange Jeep. Me. CJ7, 1979 version. Seems to me that every man ought to have himself an orange Jeep. Seems reasonable. It's a manly thing. It's a good thing. Jeep. About 10 years ago, I was um, headed on a short trip in town. I don't know where exactly. In my own personal orange Jeep. And uh, have I mentioned that I think every man ought to Okay. But anyway, I had my cell phone. It was back when they had those little flip phones, right? Everybody had one of those back in the day. Now only the old people have them. That's all right. So I set my phone on the fender and finished packing everything up into my own personal Jeep and hopped in and off I went down through Fleetwood to anyway, wherever I was going. Well, I got down to the never-ending street light, traffic light in downtown Fleetwood, and realized that I'd left my phone sitting on the fender. All of us know that feeling of remorse and despair when we've just done something that we probably never can recover from, and that's how I felt. But given the fact that I had six and a half minutes or so to sit at that street light, I thought I'll climb out of my Jeep. It wasn't hard to do because my Jeep doesn't have doors and my Jeep doesn't have a cap, which is exactly the way a Jeep ought to be. But I jumped out and I went around. Of course, the phone was not sitting there on the fender of my Jeep. So I 
Got in, waited another six and a half minutes, turned around, went back up towards the house, looking out the side and trying to find my little flippy phone, and it wasn't anywhere to be found. So I pulled in front of the house, stopped the Jeep, turned the engine off on my own little personal orange Jeep, and sat there in despair. And then I heard my little flippy phone ringing. Like, I recognize that ringtone. So I'm looking all through the Jeep. I can't find the thing. I get out, I look, I climb, I, and, and then it rings again a second time. And so I look up underneath the fender, up on top of that upper control arm where the spring goes in and sets in, and sure enough, there was my cell phone. I was so very, very happy about that. Well, I picked the phone up. Apparently, it had fallen off the fender, when I turned the wheel, it had fallen down on the tire and bounced back up on top of the upper control arm and laid there. And uh, so just very all very happy about the miracle of miracles that took place that day. So I answered the phone, and Jim Mortland on the phone. I'm like, Jim, you cannot believe what just happened. And I told him the whole story, and he was patient as he listened to the whole thing. And then he says to me, Pastor... I didn't call you, you called me. <laughs> so I'm like, so the phone falls on the tire, it jumps up on top of the control arm, and somehow or other it hits the speed dial and it calls Jim. That wasn't the miracle. The miracle was that he bothered to call me back. <laughs> Very happy about that. Hey, you know what? The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Life is good. Well, you and I know the truth that if all of that hadn't happened, all right, if, if, if it hadn't fallen onto the tire and if it hadn't bounced up in there and if it hadn't speed dialed and if Jim hadn't been good enough to call me back, I would never have found that phone. And it laid up in there a million years. The battery would have gone dead. No one ever would have found the phone. Or, and here's what I'm going to say that is risky and bold, but very funny, so prepare yourselves for it. So the phone could have sat there on top of the spring for 50 years, or it could have fallen off of the control arm, landed down on the blacktop, and some 18-wheeler could have driven by and just squished that phone flat as a pancake. Did you hear what I said? Squished. Squished like a stink bug under my foot. <laughs> That's the point. I'm just kidding. Now I'm like verse three. I know that. We get it. We're just saying that if we can praise God for his goodness in the little things of life, like orange Jeeps and like cell phones, that was lost but now is found, right? Certainly we can praise God for his outrageous goodness in redemption. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, everything changed. He saved us, not by works of righteousness done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Bow with me, shall you? Father, we bow to thank you for being so good to us. 
We do not want to be negligent in rejoicing and in exalting over this great salvation that is ours. We thank you for being favorable and being preferential towards us in redemption. And so we confess all together, though we have not seen you, we love you. And though we do not see you now, we believe in you. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. How we praise you for this outrageous goodness in redemption. And all God's people said, Amen.